By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello, and a very warm welcome to another episode of Emerging Markets Decoded, the podcast that tackles the latest trends shaping the world of emerging markets. I'm your host for today, Ariane ortiz Bolin from Moody's Global Emerging Markets Team, coming to you from New York. Today, we'll discuss two long-term trends affecting emerging markets, a declining FDI, foreign direct investment flows into most EM regions, and the rising credit risk that oil and gas reliance sovereigns face given a global push towards less carbon emissions. In the 1990s, FDI into emerging markets increased rapidly as global companies expanded their global supply chains and sought new markets. Very soon, FDI became the single largest component of capital flows into EMs and an important driver of growth. Not surprisingly, the pandemic induced a 12% decline in annual global FDI flows into developing countries. But the drop is not new. FDI flows into EMs as a share of GDP are now 50% of what they used to be when we compare the decade prior to the pandemic with the decade before the global financial crisis. We will discuss what has driven this decline and what are the current implications for sovereigns. In the second segment, we'll discuss how growing momentum to transition to a greener global economy point to an eventual and unavoidable decline in oil and gas demand. The carbon transition is steadily increasing, faster than we had anticipated. We will explore what we expect at Moody's in terms of fiscal, economic, and external sector impact for the oil and gas reliant countries. We will also discuss which sovereigns are better positioned to this transition and who are more exposed. Let's jump into our first segment, for which I'm joined by co-hosting this EM Decoded podcast, Tadius Best, also from the Global Emerging Markets team, based in London. Tadius, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ariane. Interesting for me to be on the other side of the interview table for once. Now, Tadius, let's start with a basic, but I think crucial question. Why are FDI flows important to emerging markets? The rise in FDI brought a whole host of benefits to emerging markets. For many countries, FDI represented a significant source of foreign capital, and that in turn helped to support economic development, particularly for those with constrained access to international capital markets or you know, those that had relatively thin domestic capital markets. Moreover, even for countries with ample access to capital, these inward FDI flows were accompanied by you know, additional growth-supporting benefits, things like the transfer of technology and management techniques from developed markets. Now, this is important because it helps to contribute to the total factor of productivity gains that played a significant role in driving real GDP growth in emerging markets alongside capital formation. The other factor is that FDI flows also tend to be more stable due to their longer-term investment horizon compared to portfolio flows and other investment, which is you know, mainly cross-border bank lending. While some FDI flows can still exhibit volatility, what we find is that these are typically kind of phantom pass-through capital flows that don't correspond to true FDI. So when we look at true FDI, what we see is that that remains a relatively stable source of funding from an external accounts perspective. And the other advantage, of course, is it's typically less debt creating for emerging markets compared to other sources like portfolio investment. 
Now, which emerging market regions have experienced a decline in FDI as a percentage of GDP in the last decade? Again, when comparing the decade prior to the global financial crisis with the decade prior to the pandemic. So when we aggregate the major emerging markets that we cover in this report, two regions really stand out. The first is Africa and Middle East, and the second is emerging Europe. And when we look at Africa and the Middle East, what we see is that average net inward FDI flows to GDP dropped from just over 3% between 2006 to 2009 to just over 1% between 2015 and 2019. Similarly, when we look at emerging Europe, what we see is there's a decline from just over 5% of GDP to less than 3% during the same period. Now, it's also worth mentioning that, you know, in Latin America, we saw FDI flows to GDP remain relatively stable, but this was in part due to denominator effects from contracting nominal GDP. And in contrast, what we saw is that flows into emerging Asia, excluding China, remain pretty stable during the same period. And what are the most common factors behind the decline of FDI and what differences can you identify across sectors? Obviously, the reasons behind declining FDI across global emerging markets are to some extent idiosyncratic given the diversity of sectors and industries. However, there were some striking similarities that emerged across our sample of major emerging markets. And in particular, I would highlight the decline on FDI returns and also weaker real GDP growth. So looking at FDI returns, what we see is that they've fallen sharply across emerging markets. What we used to see is that major emerging markets offered much higher rates of return compared to developed markets, which helped to compensate investors for the additional risks associated with emerging market investments, such as more challenging regulatory and business environments, and also the higher political risk. However, since 2009, what we've seen is that returns on FDI across emerging markets have declined significantly. And crucially, returns on FDI in developed markets have not fallen by the same degree. So the excess return generated by FDI in emerging markets has dropped from a high of you know, about five percentage points in 2008 to less than two percentage points by 2018. Now, that has two implications. First, in terms of the existing stock of FDI, the size of returns generated will be smaller, which results in a you know, decline in the level of reinvested earnings. And foreign investors like large multinationals seeing lower returns on their capital needs markets may also be more likely to withdraw a higher share of dividends to redeploy to markets with more favorable risk-reward profiles. Second, the falling returns will also obviously be a disincentive to investors to make new equity investments in emerging markets. The other factor we found was that growth rates on a simple real GDP basis had declined quite significantly. And in fact, most major emerging markets reported lower growth in the years following the global financial crisis than the years preceding it, which is also likely undermining their attractiveness as FDI destinations. So you mentioned that one of the reasons behind the decline in FDI is lower growth rates. But does this mean that by having less FDI, emerging markets will also grow even less in the future? So the relationship between FDI and growth is complicated, but the short answer is yes. However, the transmission mechanism varies depending on the country. So the first point to make is that for some emerging markets, FDI is an important source of capital, and that's particularly where domestic savings are low and domestic capital markets are shallow, and also where we see access to international capital markets being constrained. So in these capital-scarce countries, what we see is that FDI can help to bridge the gap between savings and investment needed to place them on a convergence path with developed economies. And now for these sovereigns with relatively more constrained access to sources of capital, all else being equal, Lower FDI flows will reduce the capacity to spend on fixed capital formation. And broadly speaking, there has already been a decline in gross fixed capital formation growth alongside the deceleration of FDI into emerging markets. And that slowdown in fixed investment has been most pronounced in Africa. And the second factor is even for sovereigns with robust access to capital, FDI flows are associated with the transmission of technical knowledge. And that creates these research and development 
spillovers and also supports training of the labor force. Now, this is significant because these technological improvements and other efficiency gains are also an important source of productivity growth for emerging markets. So typically, this transfer occurs by way of what we call vertical spillovers, which are basically spillovers that transfer through the supply chain, for example, from foreign invested firms to domestic input suppliers. And this factor is particularly salient in China and India, as well as in emerging European and African sovereigns, where total factor productivity growth has played an outsized role in driving overall real GDP growth. And finally, Talios, is there hope that these declining FDI flows will reverse? We think it's unlikely for several reasons. That's namely the fact that we you know, expect a relatively slow and uneven recovery in growth across emerging markets. Also, the fact that our expectations for the rally in commodity prices that we've seen is that ultimately it will prove very short-lived. And also, finally, due to these headwinds surrounding global trade and supply chains at the moment, and in particular, the fraying of US-China political and economic ties, which affect the rest of the world, particularly with regard to global trade, which is, of course, very closely tied to FDI flows. Finally, the pandemic has really highlighted the vulnerabilities of supply chains, you know, particularly these just-in-time manufacturing models that depend on predictable shipping conditions to minimize the need for storage and warehousing space. And what we've seen is the supply last year was just not able to keep up with the revival of demand, with the pandemic causing disruptions and delays throughout the global goods supply chain. So as a consequence, we think the pandemic will accelerate the move towards localization of some production, which will result in the relocation of supply to places that are geopolitically and geographically closer to the home countries or end users, which are predominantly in the developed markets. Thaddeus, thank you for sharing with us today the key insights you and the team drew from looking closely at the data. Now let's move on to the next segment, where we're going to turn to Alexander Pergesi from our sovereign risk team in Dubai to explore what are the credit implications of carbon transition for oil and gas reliance sovereigns. Alex, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Ariane. Alex, let's start with understanding how carbon transition will play out. Let me perhaps start by saying that the precise path that carbon transition could take over the next decade or two, and including what that means for oil demand and prices, and by extension for oil and gas exporting sovereigns is far from a foregone conclusion. There is a lot of uncertainty and debate around how the carbon transition pathway would look over the next several years. But there are, I would say, two key points, a growing global commitment to reducing carbon emissions and numerous pledges to fight climate change. The first one, assuming all the emissions reduction pledges are genuine, we are heading toward an eventual structural decline in global demand for oil and gas. So it is a matter of when and how, rather than if or whether, carbon transition will take place. The second point is that the growing climate action pledges from governments as well as corporations and investors imply an increasing likelihood that energy transition will be faster than what we have seen so far and faster than what is for most the current baseline. Okay. And under our current baseline, which sovereigns are most exposed? In terms of pure raw exposures, it is unsurprisingly the sovereigns that are most dependent on their oil and gas sectors that will be most exposed to the credit impact of carbon transition. There are a number of sovereigns where this exposure is particularly large. We are talking here mainly about the oil and gas producing sovereigns of the Middle East region, like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Abu Dhabi or Iraq, but also Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan in Central Asia, and a handful of uh, sub-Saharan African sovereigns like Angola, Nigeria and the Congo. For most of these sovereigns, 
Oil and gas accounts for about 50 or more percent of total government revenue and is in most cases equivalent to 15 or more percent of GDP. We have identified about 17 of these hydrocarbon-reliant sovereigns. 17 carbon-reliant sovereigns are exposed then. Now, what are the credit transmission channels of carbon transition? How will sovereigns be affected? As carbon transition gathers space and demand for fossil fuel weakens, less robust and eventually declining oil and gas revenues will lead to weaker fiscal positions, larger fiscal deficits, and higher debt burdens, or eroding sovereign wealth fund assets for those that have these assets to start with. This is also the key channel that we have focused on in our modeling of the carbon transition impact on hydrocarbon-reliant sovereigns. In practice, of course, the credit impact of carbon transition will be a lot more complex. It will be a result of a complex interaction of multiple channels, including the deteriorating fiscal strength that we already talked about, eroding economic strength, and importantly, rising external vulnerability risks and government liquidity risks. For most of the hydrocarbon-reliant sovereigns, oil and gas sector is also a major, if not the main source of exports, and hence the main source of foreign currency liquidity. As for government liquidity risk, this is an important nascent channel that is worth emphasizing here. All the growing climate commitments from the global financial institutions and investors that have been seen over the past two to three years mean that eventual decline of in hydrocarbon demand and prices will likely be accompanied, if not preceded, by the decline in demand for hydrocarbon-related assets, which would include debt of hydrocarbon-reliant sovereigns that we are talking here about. That will be bound to constrain the sovereign's capacity to refinance their maturing obligations. Now, so far, we have not seen any of the sovereigns. We have highlighted facing liquidity constraints, such as reduced capital market access, specifically because of carbon transition. But the financing channel of transmission is likely to grow in importance, especially as investors begin to anticipate faster carbon transition. Now, Alex, to summarize the channels, it's the fiscal, a debt channel, the possibility of liquidity stress, and now there's a growing importance of the financing channel due to these shifting consumer and investor preferences. How much time do these sovereigns have to prepare for carbon transition? Well, that depends on your view about the most likely carbon transition path. Under Moody's baseline, which assumes a very gradual carbon transmission, the time for adjustment for most exposed sovereign is about 10 to 15 years. This is the time before fiscal pressures begin to intensify under our uh, carbon transition baseline. But let me take a quick step back and explain what we have done to come with this conclusion. Essentially, we have run a scenario analysis. We have taken the four alternative energy transition scenarios and the associated oil demand and oil price paths that are annually updated by the International Energy Agency. And for each of these four scenarios, we have simulated fiscal performance and the applied evolution of the key debt and debt affordability metrics. Now, under our baseline scenario at Moody's, which is IEA's stated policy scenario, for the majority of the sovereigns, the bulk of the fiscal deterioration will only take place in the 2030s. So this means that most of them have, in principle, at least about 10 years to adjust. And what if the pace of carbon transition accelerates? How much time would they have then? You said 10 years. Is it five? Well, if it accelerates, which would require material progress on new policies and regulation, but also very massive new investments in renewables and renewables infrastructure, 
the fiscal pressures would intensify and the window for adjustment would begin to narrow, possibly quite rapidly in the more rapid scenarios. Based on our simulations under these more rapid scenarios, virtually all hydrocarbon-reliant sovereigns come under significant fiscal and credit pressure even in the 2020s unless they implement significant fiscal and economic adjustment over the coming decade. The sovereigns that would experience especially sharp fiscal deterioration in those scenarios are Azerbaijan, Iraq, Kuwait, as well as Oman. Now, are there any offsetting measures that governments are taking to lower their exposure to these carbon transition risks, or are there any mitigants for these sovereigns? Well, most of the governments have become well aware of the risks associated with their dependence on the oil and gas sector, especially following the structural decline in oil prices since 2015. And again, after the sharp drop, even if temporary, of oil demand and prices in 2020 due to the pandemic. And they have already started to make some of the adjustments to reduce their dependence on oil and gas, both on the fiscal side, as well as in terms of increasing their economic diversification. But mitigating carbon transition will require additional very significant fiscal adjustment and additional economic transformation to mitigate the potential negative credit impact. On the fiscal side, this adjustment will mean further cuts in non-interest spending or further broadening of non-oil revenue sources. In general, the sovereigns that have the strongest institutions and the largest sovereign wealth fund buffers are in the best position to adjust over the medium term. They are also more likely to avoid complacency in the current supportive oil market environment. Those sovereigns include Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar which have, according to our assessment, the strongest institutional capacity to adjust. And when it comes to sovereign wealth fund assets, it is Kuwait, Abu Dhabi, but also Qatar and Azerbaijan that really stands out in terms of the size of the war chest that could be used to both buffer the transition as well as support diversification efforts. Alex, thank you for a very insightful conversation. To read more about this research topic and to keep up to speed with our latest views across all emerging markets, you can visit our dedicated Emerging Markets Hub for the very latest research, podcasts, and interactive webinars at moody's.com slash emerging markets. You can also subscribe to Moody's Talks Emerging Markets Decoded on your favorite podcast channels, including Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. And please do share your feedback and reviews for future episodes. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for joining us.